Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. Let's get started. Yeah, I have no shortage of stuff to talk about. It's been a good week. Apparently me neither. I uh, got a new version of my day job software released. Yeah. Um, which is fun. It was the first one of those in a while. Um, and, uh, this weekend had an opportunity to start digging into unity. Unity. Not unity. unreal. Not unreal. What's um, up with that? Uh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, probably the biggest of which is more monkey see monkey do than anything else. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to get the real advantage out of learning this stuff. I need at least one person that I know who's going to do it. And while you were doing unreal, well, okay, fine. Let's do unreal. But when you're not doing unreal, now I know no unreal developers. And, uh, that, but, that strikes me as more complicated. Well, the funny thing is I started looking in unreal because you were going to look into unreal. Oh yeah. Hmm. Because our initial idea was like, I'll do Unity, you do Unreal, and then we'll have something to, you know, kind of argue back and forth about defend our platforms. And then that just never happened. Oh. Yeah, I forgot about that part. So you were doing I mean, that was, Unity. Right? That was like seven months ago. Okay. Well, then good. Um, no, I, I the appeal of a Ray Wenderlich book on the topic was nice. I've done them before. I've done them a couple of times in other environments for things like Sprite kit and, uh, Cocos 2d. Um, and I just, I know what the feel and the flow is going to be like, and I know what I'm going to have when I'm done with it. And too many of these other tutorials, I just, I don't really know. I have lots of hopes, but I don't necessarily have confidence in the coursework and you were working far ahead of me and bumping into substantive problems with the coursework. Um, If there was a Ray Wenderlich book on unreal, I probably would have gotten that and just restarted using that tutorial system than anything else. And I think they will eventually release something. They've, they've done a couple blogs this year, did a handful last year. They've done, a few this year. So I think they're just kind of gathering some more Unreal Engine developers and experience before they're ready to actually make something like that. I don't see them not doing that. Yeah. Eventually. It's just, I don't know that it's going to be in the next three to six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So what do you think of Unity? I know you've used it in the past, but what do you think of it now? Um, Not bad. I haven't gotten to the point where I get to write any code yet. Um, once again, I'm still too early for the code writing portion of the thing. And it's just walking around in the environment. Um, there are pieces to the interface to unreal that I preferred. Like I prefer the rotation widget. It just seemed to be a heck of a lot easier to grab something and rotate it. In yeah, Unreal, because the the targets are so big. Um, yeah, I find myself using just the transform fields a lot more in Unity. Probably just as a side effect of that widget being kind of hard to grab onto. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I don't have enough familiarity with it to say this is better or this is worse. So far, that seems good, but I didn't really think to use the other rotation widget or the the one in the inspector. Yeah. Um, it does seem like Unity, Unity just kind of – there's a couple of main workflows like the project browser, the hierarchy, the inspector, and the scene – and everything else is just kind of jammed into the Windows menu. Mm-hmm. You just go to window slash animator, window slash animation, and pull up each one of those. And they just kind of show up wherever. And you can move them around and document as you need. Um, but they feel kind of secondary to everything else. Whereas Unreal Engine has that as well, where they're secondary workflows. But it feels like every all those other workflows have a dedicated window style and a, mm-hmm. you know, a unique design language for that window. And like, this is how you use it. They have a little tutorial. So it does feel like they've got a more recent revision of their, you know, the whole application from a developer standpoint, like, and from a, uh, a level designer standpoint, like here's the different windows that you'll need for your role. And here's the different windows you'll need for your role. And, you know, like the material editor in Unreal Engine is incredible. And then materials and unity are just like, Oh, it's in the inspector. Just whatever, <laughs> do it yourself. So yeah, there's definitely some differences at the end of the day. It, for me anyway, unity is just easier to wrap my head around. And I mm-hmm. think it's because it's, it's probably an instance of that 80, 20 rule where 80% of the stuff I'm going to do is in these windows that are there by default. And then the rest of it's like, just show me what I need when I need it. Doesn't really. We don't have to put a lot of polish on it. It's just a secondary window that you hardly ever need. Yeah, and most of my current problems with Unity, I'm quite sure, are just familiarity problems. For example, right from the beginning when we were doing the Unreal coursework, that coursework taught key commands for hiding objects from the scene view. And so it was just, oh, hide, click this, hide it, click this, hide it, click this, hide it. Now grab this thing. Now bring everything back. Um, and the Wenderlich book is walking us through. Okay, well, here's where this little checkbox is. And like, if I need to hide 10 things, I don't want that to be the way I'm doing it. But I'm putting the odds at about 98% that there's a really easy way to do that in, in Unity that I just haven't been introduced to or found yet. Like hiding and showing objects is going to be a common activity when you're doing this kind of design. And so I'm quite sure there's key commands. I just don't know them yet. Um, I did really like the unity or the unreal key command. This is what like just hitting the space bar that dropped something so that it would land on the next nearest surface. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So you could like grab right. a couch, place it in the room, hovering in the air, hit the space bar, and it just drops and lands on the floor. And that was very helpful. And I don't know yeah, if th- there's something like that in Unity. There's a good chance. Yeah, I think that was the end key in Unreal Engine. Oh, was it the end key? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the space bar was like a mode toggle or something. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of cool mode toggles, brief digression, Maya has this view in this feature where basically you click the you're in your say your 3d view and you click the space bar and it brings up the four or the three other views in a grid of four views whichever one your mouse is over when you click the space bar again you go back into that one or you can work in all four views it's just a really quick way of switching between those things i found really helpful 
But yeah, so I mean, I just finished chapter two of a 24 chapter book. I, I don't, I still don't know anything. This is more along the lines of letting everybody know that I'm back on trying to learn things. That's about the best I've got right now. You know, I, I placed some little thingies and that was pretty much it. So you've done Hello Unity and game objects. Yeah. Placing the little soldier and placing the little thing and turning things into prefabs and mm-hmm. and going from there. That all seems like a pretty reasonable system. Yeah, the, the my first introduction to prefabs wasn't here. It was somewhere else, maybe in the documents or one of the video tutorials. And I, you know, the title of it is like how to make a prefab. And then we made a game object and dragged it into the project browser. And then I, you made a prefab. Go home now. <laughs> <laughs> Like, wow, that's ridiculously easy. Yeah. The only thing I'm not crazy about with prefabs is when you're, you've got an instance in the hierarchy that you're modifying and you want to push those changes back to the prefab, there's a little apply button uh-huh. in the inspector. I just think they need to do a, a bit bigger deal visually to tell you that your changes aren't saved to the prefab. Like, they do that in the hierarchy view by changing it from, the blue that indicates it's a prefab to gray, but what if I don't see blue, which I happen to, but I mean, yeah, just need a more obvious giant checkbox or yeah. Warning or something like that. When I told the, the overall terrain object to hide, it went Mm -hmm. from dark blue to ever so slightly less dark blue. (laughs) And that was one of the things that I liked about the unreal Interface is I think it was using the little eyeball symbols, like yeah. almost like a layer editor in Photoshop or something like that. And so um, it, it was just a little bit more clear about that stuff. But again, I'm mm-hmm. just getting started. I don't want to I'm not in a position yet to make a reasonable comparison between these two environments. This is no. first glance. Huh? That's kind of interesting. I wonder why they didn't do that. And then moving on. Yeah. And at the same time, Unity, the the application itself is extensible. And there's right. a ton of plugins out there. So I'm sure a lot of people have already solved these issues or created their own little interfaces for stuff. Yeah, when going with I, a prefab, it would be really nice to be able to see a summary of what is different in this instance mm-hmm. over the prefab. It's like, okay, so what is different? Itemize these things for me, please. I don't even, it may totally be there. Hit the Q button while you're clicked on the instance. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like somebody needs to write a developer tool to (laughs) do that comparison. (laughs) I'm not going to rule it out. (laughs) I I read a, a fascinating article on Unity's blog today that, um, they were having their conference and just working through just different things they wanted to, and you know, different departments wanted to solve different problems internally. And the author, his, his or her big pet peeve was just a lot of code in their scripting documentation. Wasn't really standalone code. It was just like, you, you really need to put this into your class and then it'll run. But he really wanted he or she really wanted their code snippets to kind of stand on their own. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, we've got 1500 pages. How do we figure out what's what? 
And he actually used some of the features that they've introduced in Unity recently to make a like a modified version of the editor using their extensibility features. And uh, I, I don't even know all of the technical jargon, but basically pulled in the XML files that all of their documentation is based off of and ran, basically built a unit testing <laughs> process. <laughs> For running the code snippets. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was pretty awesome little story. I'll see if I can find that and put that in the show notes. That's great. But uh, by the way, a quick comment for any of our listeners is that if you're interested in a lot of this kind of stuff, the other awesome place to go look for it is Joe's Twitter feed. (laughs) The things that he bookmarks and shares and retweets are awesome. I mean, there's just, there's, there are so many great articles there. I've stopped looking at your feed because I just don't have the time to look at everything that I'm interested in looking at. And there's a ton of great stuff in there. There's actually too much great stuff in there. And I don't know what the solution to that problem is. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I guess, to put that in perspective, I I have a weird little workflow where I, you know, I'll, I'll kind of browse Twitter and, and see if there's anything there I wanted to read or save to Instapaper. And as I'm working, I may save a couple of articles that I find, you know, I'm looking up documentation that I want to drill into this feature more. I may find a blog post about it and I'll save that for reading later. And that that's kind of the the light version, the, the day-to-day version. Mm-hmm. I also have an RSS reader. I just use Feedly for right now that has a couple of dozen RSS feeds in it. Um, and every every day or every couple of days, I open that and... I've got enough sources in there that I can have a hundred articles waiting for me every day. And I just do a quick review of that. Mm-hmm. I'm just browsing, you know, the titles and just picking out what I think is going to interest me without even clicking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I will save about 10 or 20% of that to Instapaper. And then everything that goes in, into Instapaper is what I actually end up reading. And about 20% of that actually gets the little, heart button which posts it to Twitter. <laughs> so you're only seeing about twenty percent of the stuff I actually read and only like five percent of uh-huh. everything I see on a daily basis. Well, and that's why it's all great stuff. I had to stop using an RSS reader. An RSS reader made me way too efficient at finding information that I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um and that's just a bad move for me. Like I, yeah. I'm interested in too much stuff to present me a list of a hundred articles that are really going to be interesting. Yeah. I, I use Feedly very purpose driven. Like I mm-hmm. used it like right now I'm using it to learn about VR development and game development in unity, but I've used it in the past to learn about personal finances and, you know, different history topics and stoic philosophy and stuff like that. So it's usually, it's only serving one purpose and I'll kind of, you know, just, delete all the feeds. There's a couple things that kind of live in there all the time, like the way, but why blog. Um, but for the most part, it's like, I, this is a tool that I'm using to aggregate as much information about a one, a specific topic for, you know, a couple of months. And then I move on to a different topic with it. But right now it's pretty handy. But I see what you mean about like, if I still had all of the stoic blogs and all of the personal finance stuff in there, I would never get anything done. Which is 
I guess a side topic this weekend, I made myself take a couple of days off. So I, I, you know, I got a lot done last week, but basically gave myself a three day work week where I had Monday off to hang out with some friends. And I took Friday and Saturday off of like no programming stuff whatsoever. No, mm-hmm. you no opening unity, no opening Maya, none of this stuff. Just do something else. Do you still have a personality anywhere in there, Joe? <laughs> And, uh, and fortunately, the answer was no. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, nope, cleaned all of that up. No more yeah. personality to worry about. Well, unfortunately, the answer is I still have a voracious appetite for knowledge. And it, programming is a pretty cognitively draining task. Mm-hmm. But all of my hobbies are even more cognitively draining. <laughs> like just, it doesn't take me long to end up with 40 books on the floor, like looking through a specific philosophical topic. Um, I, Joe, I, I'm not sure that, that it's the topics that are the problem. Like I was trying to imagine a non-cognitively draining one. I'm like, I'm sure you could find a way to turn whittling into a cognitively draining topic. <laughs> I'm and not sure it's the topic. I could probably figure out where it came from and how long we've been doing it and why we started doing it. <laughs> Even if I couldn't find out, I would want to. Or digging further into the physics of the exact nature of the wood and mm-hmm. what kind of blades. Yeah, it's yeah, it's you, Joe. It's not the topic. Yeah, but at the you know, basically, it was only three hours into my day off on Friday before I had reorganized my entire books list into a new database and then uh, made a massive reading list out of that and, you know, started reading a couple of books and then, you know, a word here or there makes me think of another topic and I've got to look this up and I've got to look that that up. And I noticed, you know, like the whole six degrees of separation thing Mm -hmm. with people I have a similar phenomenon. I'm not sure how many degrees of separation it is, but basically any topic that I look into, and I'm sorry, this has nothing to do with the podcast, but any topic that I look into at some point will lead me back to existential philosophy. <laughs> I have no idea why. And I mean within an hour. Like that quickly, like I'm I'm diving into physics and going to watch some physics, video, physics videos on YouTube and just... I'm not, I don't care about this too much because it's way over my head. And before you know it, I'm sitting there reading start. Like, this is not supposed to happen. <laughs> Once again, Joe, I'm not sure it's the topic. No. It's just kind of weird. It's how my brain works. But anyway, so what have you learned in Unity so far? Um, so it's mostly navigating around and placing things in a scene. Like, nothing has moved yet. Yeah. Um seeing how the coordinate system works and moving things around and doing a little bit of rotating, uh, creating empty objects to function as wrappers for other objects. Mm-hmm. I, uh, my biggest problem there is one of the things that they make, a uh, an array of like 11 different, um, um, spawn points that are later going to be spawning monsters. Mm-hmm. And they're scattered all over the place, and then you make an empty game object 
to store all of those things and just throw all of them in there so you can wrap them up nice and tight. Mm-hmm. And the thing that hurts my brain is that that game object has a position. Yeah. Like, and those, <sighs> and technically those child game objects have a position relative to that parent. Yes. So I can't, once I've wrapped it, I can't really then say, okay, now I'm going to move that object without moving all those things. Mm -hmm. So it's good that that object doesn't really appear visibly in the uh, scene interface, but it is still a thing that kind of hurts my brain that these wrapper objects have an independent position, even if it's a thing that I'm never going to move and adjust. Like it makes sense that the wrapper that we created around the, uh, space Marine that has the body part and the head part as Mm. two separate sub objects. Um, it makes sense to me that that space Marine as a whole has a position that is independent of the body and the head, but the body and the head's position is dependent upon the position of the Marine as a whole. That all makes sense. But when you make it for a thing that isn't going to be moving around, I want the position of that object to be meaningful. Yeah. And I can probably arrange for it to be meaningful, but that doesn't help me at really any. It's, it's coding for my own brain and not for what the engine actually needs. Yeah. Like, oh, no, no, no. The thing that wraps all of these up, it must be in the center. Why? <laughs> It doesn't have to be in the center. There's no, there's no reason. There's no advantage. And there could be a disadvantage. If I stack up eight of those things right in the middle, it could just make that area full. No, as long as they're, they don't have any substance of game objects, you can, it doesn't matter how many of them you have in the same position. I'm more meaning like clicking around in the interface. Like if I'm clicking in the scene, trying to select an object and there's 10 different little, global game world objects that are just wrapping up various kinds of components, putting all of those central points in the very center of the map. is just a lot of stuff to put in one place. Yeah. I think that's the biggest difference I see between the scene editor and the viewport in unreal engine is that in unity, you really rely on that hierarchy view pretty much do all selection. At least I do anyway. Mm-hmm. Like I, I fell immediately into that. Whereas, you know, with a background of FileMaker, you're used to working directly with the objects. Um, this is more just working with the names of the objects in the hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. It's funny, like FileMaker just released a feature recently, didn't they? Where you can actually have a layout hierarchy. Yeah. Am I misremembering that? I'm sorry. Yeah. I was looking at the next section of the book. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sorry. Yeah, th- th- this first chapter, the section one getting started chapter, there's just a ton of information in there as you make this game with the little space marine. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're, you'll cover a lot of ground in a pretty short period of time. So I guess... Based on my experience with this book, depending on what your motivation is with this book, like do you want to exhaustively go through the entire thing or are you trying to go through it as fast as possible so you can start work on something? Um, I would say if you want to move through it quickly, you could do section one and section two, the first two games, and 
depending on whether or not you want to make any 2D platformers, you could, that section is entirely skippable. The I, I would love to see how you react to Blender, so I'd suggest you try that. <laughs> I did a little and bit I, of Blender a long time ago. Okay. Um, so I already know it's going to be horrifying. <laughs> and then uh, the tower defense game is probably what you'll have a lot of fun with because it does have a vibe component. But before you even go into chapter three, I suggest you go into the appendix and do those chapters. Okay. Um, you probably won't even need to do the section on C sharp. So just chapter 23 and 24, they'll just kind of fill you in with a lot of other stuff that is good to know throughout the rest of the book. Yeah. I, I'm definitely going to scan the sections on C sharp just because my biggest concern about C sharp is not really knowing where the line is between what's C sharp and what's dot net. Mm-hmm. Like what parts of C sharp am I going to be using? Cause I've been using a lot of different parts in my day to day job. And I don't think all of those are accessible from inside unity. Yeah, but Unity, from what I, I'm going to probably botch explaining this, but Unity uses Mono, which mm-hmm. is the open source version of .NET. Right. So it's going to be a lot of similarities. But really, most of the code I've written so far is very basic you know, language, mm-hmm. basic stuff, like variables and strings and arrays and lots of floats. And then everything else has just been a class or a method in the APIs from unity. Yeah. So I haven't run into, I don't know. I haven't run into any particularly weird stuff yet. Yeah. Again, I'm not actually worried about it. I'm probably not going to do those sections, but I will almost certainly skim them just to Mm -hmm. see if there's any major elements or just to see which parts of the language they're using most often. Yeah. Well, cool. So I finally started working on a project last week. Yeah. And I guess I officially started it two weeks ago, but I did like a day of work on it. Last week I did two whole days of work on it. So double the work. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, I think I started on Tuesday morning and just worked a full day on this project and nothing else. Like there was no emails, there was no calls. It was a nice quiet day and made a ton of progress. Um, last week I mentioned one of the things I was kind of waiting on was I had posted an issue on the Google VR unity GitHub page about some scripts that were missing that I needed, or at least they were used in a tutorial that I was trying to work through to build one of the initial input features that I was going for. Right. And they got back to me Monday night and said, yeah, those two classes have been refactored into these other two classes and we'll make sure we get the documentation updated. So that was solved and I was able to, I guess there was nothing technically limiting me from fixing it on my own, but I just wanted to know like, am I missing something here? Are the, did I just not get, a full copy of the API. Right. So, well, and and the other important question is how was that experience? Like, did the answer come back with something you could work with? Was there problems with the community going RTFM or 
No, it was just a very straightforward response of like, you know, I, I, my question was really short, like, Hey, these two classes are not in the API version 1.7. Here's the documentation for each of them. Am I missing something? And they replied back of something along the lines of those two classes have been absorbed into these two classes. You can use those. Okay. And we'll check in the documentation. So yeah, just very short Twitter length exchange. Okay. But it gave you what you needed to move forward. Yep. Okay. Awesome. And then, uh, so I used that to get some really basic input tracking with the controllers and particularly getting the transform of where the controller is pointing and then kind of use that to start getting some stuff in C sharp and getting those transforms and doing stuff with them. And then I basically started by just cloning making a copy of the Google VR demo scene and just working in that and uh, still working in that right now. Um, I haven't really found the need to start making my own scene with it yet as I'm really just working on specific characters and game objects. But yeah, I got that first day I got the controller working. I got a really primitive version of what I guess I'm going to call a character. Um, Got that loaded just off of a a template from Maya. Like I just opened the Maya content browser and found a cat and inserted a cat into the project. Uh-huh. And it was massive. Like, like, like an 80 foot tall cat? Like several hundred feet. <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's a big cat. Yeah. It was awesome. So it scaled that down and, uh, Got that working. And then Tuesday, so I guess by the end of Monday, I had some character tracking. I had some character movement. I had some input working with the controller and a really primitive mesh. And then Tuesday, I spent the day asset shopping in the Unity Asset Store in the morning and found a couple different things that I really liked and then ended up settling on one of them from an independent artist and I picked it because I liked it the most visually. It had some pretty good animations built in and the artist is for hire. Okay. So if I, if I need more, if I need to change materials or do a custom version of it, I think I can reach out to him and say, Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Can we, you know, I, I really like this thing, but I really want to take it to, you know, really want to customize a version of it for, my game. I think, I don't, I don't think that's going to be too big of a deal. Hopefully. No, that sounds awesome. That's an interesting selection criteria. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't apply that to everything that I get. Like yeah. I'm going to buy a bunch of, you know, trees. I don't care. I can <laughs> find as many trees as I need, but, um, so the models that I got off of him, you know, they were fully loaded prefabs you know there was obviously the models the materials animations built in all worked into a bunch of prefabs and i used one of those on tuesday to get a barely working animated version of the character Mm -hmm. and this is where my brain just kind of broke as far as i'm gonna how do i say this right there's animations and then there's the animator animations are where you do the you know the keyframe animation of 
we're going to move this arm by this little bit here, and then we're going to rotate a little bit here. That's not the part I was having trouble with. That I have all that in the prefabs. I don't even have to do all that, which okay. is freaking incredible how detailed these animations are. The the part that I ran into, the animator is where you can do those transitions between one animation state and another. And it's oh. a pretty easy system to understand, but I have so many different animations and need to do so many transitions. The way that you do that is, I guess, you know, the very basic design pattern is create some transitions from one to the other and then create a parameter that you can call. It can either be a string or a float or a bool or a trigger. And the trigger one's pretty impressive. Um, and then you just call those from C sharp code attached to that object when you need to. So say you're you're standing, you've got your idle animation, like the most common one. You'll even see this in the book. You've got a character that's standing, just doing a little idle animation, maybe playing with a yo-yo, and then you push the directional pad on your controller. You can use that input to call that input parameter and say, you know, start this or start call this animation parameter and start the walk animation. And then when you let go, go back to the idle animation. And so I've got some very basic stuff like that working, but I have so many different animation states that I kind of work myself into like a mental corner. Like, how do I get here from there? How do I get everywhere from everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, yeah. I, I, I I think I know what to do. It's it's not the animator part that's really tripping me up. It's how do I deal with it in scripting and how am I going to set up all the different parameters and is there an easier way? Is there some kind of animation object that I can use to fluidly go from one to the other and just you know call a different number out or call a different parameter out? Um, but I think what I need to do. And what I intend to do tomorrow is just to find some more complicated games, open source games on GitHub, and just see how people are dealing with this. Okay. And just look at their state machines and look at their code that's calling that and seeing how are you... It's not so much how are you technically doing it, it's just how are you actually making it reasonable to work with. Right. I mean, it would be like writing a script with a whole bunch of parameters... A FileMaker script with a whole bunch of parameters, and each parameter has a subscript, and each one of them can recursively call another one of those child scripts in mm -hmm. the same hierarchy based on the parameters. Like, I know how to do that. I don't really want to do that, but I can if I have to. Uh, yeah. I mean, talking completely out of my tail, the answer probably ends up being having fewer overall animation states. Yeah, I'll definitely start with, like, I think I'm just going to start with three or four. Right. And see, because I can work with really complex version of three or four. Um, But the other thing you might be able to do is use a smaller number of base common states. So, like, standing and walking are my base states mm -hmm. and everything else transitions in and out of those. Yeah. So if you needed to transition to some 16th state, you will first go from, you know, to walking then to sprinting. Yeah. And if you need to get from sprinting to stop, you're going to transition through walking to stop. 
unless you need a full sprint, you know, like a, a power slide stop, you know, full sprint to dead stop kind of thing where you slide across the floor or whatever. You know, yeah, I think there will be a fair bit of running into walls, <laughs> but that's for another day. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like, I, I, I worked it. I worked on it until my brain hurt, and I decided I was done for the day. Yeah, and then, uh, it, uh, it definitely brings up the point of I need to really make myself not just in code, but in and this type of problems just make something work. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was thinking about it today, I have this tendency, especially with code you know, or writing scripts or writing some PHP or some FileMaker scripts. I have this tendency. It comes from being really good at FileMaker that I I don't refactor my FileMaker code. I just write it correctly the first time. <laughs> Because I'm so good at it, mm-hmm. but I I have I have got this bad habit of expecting myself to be really good at this, and I'm not. So I need to just get into the habit of just write sloppy code that works and refactor it later. Once I find out that it works or that it's a bad idea, but I tend to rather than dive right into Visual Studio and write out the example code, I tend to pull up a text file and start making an outline and start writing out all the different possibilities. I just need to make myself stop doing that. It's just not helpful. Yeah. One of the tricks that I keep wanting to get into myself is throwing away my prototype. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that I could fix if I would throw away my progress when my prototype is done and start over going, okay, now let's build that the right way. And so if you tried it that way, that would give you the ability to be as messy as humanly possible now, because you know that not a single line of code is going to make the transition to the finished product. You know, that's a really good idea. Um, You are 100% going to pitch this thing. And so it doesn't have to be clean. It doesn't have to be nice. It doesn't have to be well-organized in any way, shape, or form because you are committing to throwing it out. You're going to do a final commit, lock that thing, and you're done. And then you will start over with a brand new project and go, now that I know how this stuff works and, and whatever. And I think that might also help cap some of your desires to put more features in the prototype. Like you don't need to transition between 16 different animations. You need to transition between two, maybe three, and maybe none. Like, you should be able to figure out if the game's any good with, you know, two states. Yeah. Still. Yeah, pretty much. And honestly, still can just be the walking animation not going anywhere. That's what it is right now. <laughs> right. Walking animation not going anywhere crumpled into a wall. There you go. There's your two animations. Go. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to do that. That's a really good idea. I was already kind of doing a mini version of that, of just having a separate scene, just a separate workspace scene away from the rest of the, quote-unquote, the, the, the game or the actual scenes. Yeah. But and I'll probably always do that because it's the way that you – work on your prefabs is actually working on them in a scene. So I don't really want to junk up real scenes that are done or 
reasonably done by risking leaving some of those invisible objects around unnecessarily. But yeah, I like this idea of just the entire project as it stands now as a prototyping project. And then I can kind of re-implement stuff, which I, you know, thinking back on it, I did that kind of thing with a lot of my early FileMaker projects where I would make a little bit of progress, run up against the wall, screw something up, and then start over. Right. And I probably, like my first, my first database was obviously an anime database because I'm that guy. Obviously. Yeah. And I probably have a folder of 40 different iterations of that over the years. And 30 of them were probably within the first three months of me doing FileMaker Dev. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that this week. Um, and the cool thing with prefabs is I should be able to build a working character even if I don't use all the bells and whistles, the work that I do here, I should be able to transport into the other project. I actually create a new project and, and grab that character prefab and grab the any customizations I've done to the inputs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you can make an intelligent choice to migrate stuff over, but I've found that a lot of the code that I wrote at the very beginning of a project needed to be replaced. <laughs> and I didn't because it technically worked. I'm not, well, I'm not yeah. even talking about the code. I'm more <laughs> concerned about the, all the game objects with tons mm-hmm. of different stuff attached to them. Yeah. I, I just know when you're looking at those game objects and the stuff attached to them, the line between that and code can get a little hazy from time to time. And so that's, that's all mm-hmm. I was speaking to. It's like, yes, yeah. if you want to move a graphic over and, and move over a model with a material and sure, um, yeah, if I had if I had some kind of Unity analysis tool that could tell me which scripts I need to attach to what, Joe, <laughs> it's only a matter of time. <laughs> Just as a reminder to our listeners, that's kind of what I do in my day job is making a analysis tool for FileMaker developers. So I spent a lot of time making developer tools and I have to watch myself or I will just start making developer tools for Unity or Unreal, which yeah. in and of themselves is not necessarily a bad idea and it could make a perfectly wonderful business model. What it will not do is help me make a game. We need to start making VR analysis tools. That also could be very fun. Not in and of itself a game. Yeah. So let's talk about assets. Do we okay. talk about assets? So Unity's got a pretty impressive asset store of not just 3D assets, but sound and code snippets and extensions for Unity itself and just a ton of stuff there. But there is kind of a negative view about Unity as just kind of a a program that a lot of people have used to just churn out lower quality content by downloading some assets, giving it a quick mechanic, and shipping it mm-hmm. to Steam. So they've gotten kind of a bad name for a lot of that stuff. And it seems like people have just decided that anything with assets from the Unity store is therefore crap. 
or anything that even looks like it. Like I, there's an artist I follow on Twitter who is making this game with an incredibly cute little goat character and she's you know posting screenshots of it every day as this this character evolves and I can see her working on it and she said you know somebody asked her about something today and she said yeah my last game on Steam people just called it asset garbage like I did everything from hand and people just don't know what they're talking about mm-hmm. um and just yeah it's one of the reasons I decided I wanted to work with Daydream instead of Steam I know the reviews aren't going to be any that much different from Steam on Daydream, but it feels like there's a very aggressive, elitist community of nerds on Steam that, like, I don't really have a lot of identity with these people anymore. Well, you know, Joe, actually, the the best solution to this problem is we should stop talking about the fact that we're using Unity. Yeah. And then we just never tell people that we're using Unity, and they won't be looking for that angle. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my target custom my target customers aren't other game developers. Yeah. They're people that have a Daydream headset and looking to have some fun. Play a little fun game. Yeah. So you know, I I've got the Unity Plus edition. I can remove the splash screen. Nobody will know that my game is a Daydream thing unless they come and find the dev blog or the podcast or something like that. Yeah. I was more um, jokingly referring to the podcast. It was like, "Nope, we got to stop t- doing the podcast." Yeah. Just just stop because nobody can know what it was made with. Yeah. It's <sighs> it's a weird situation. Like imagine if I guess you kind of see that with FileMaker, mm-hmm. where a lot of IT people would kind of turn their nose up at something made by Apple. Like, Apple doesn't make databases. Like yeah. Yeah, they just kind of own the company. It's a different thing. <laughs> I've I've seen a lot of similar responses to really anything that tries to democratize the creation process. So some of the most famous examples are going to be things like real basic. Okay. Um, which was a basic based GUI development environment, which I think is now actually Zojo. Okay. Um, and the other one was visual basic for windows. Mm -hmm. There are tons of visual basic apps out there. And as a general rule of thumb, they have a relatively bad reputation. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't people making thousands of new apps a year targeting specifically that way, because the trick is it solves the problem. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing to stop you from making a good looking or good functioning visual basic app. You just have to actually put in that extra effort to make it a decent interface. Yeah. Um, so I guess my my question or concern is using assets should I be concerned about using assets from the Unity Asset Store and what kind of assets should I and should I not use? Like what I have so far is some assets for a character, but I may very well just decide to plop an entire home kit of stuff together to build, you know, an entire living room mm-hmm. with all the furniture and knickknacks and stuff like that. Um, and I'm wondering how much of that I should try to do on my own, how much of it I should try to get from the store and just use directly, how much of it I should try to get to the store and maybe make my own materials or change prop- what properties I can to kind of customize it. Um, I think that middle option is probably the best for me right now. 
Uh, I'm not in a position where I can hire an artist to do a lot of stuff. But uh, the character itself is probably the only thing I can really afford to spend substantial money on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what are, your, what are your thoughts? Like, I guess, what are you planning on doing? <clears throat> well, when prototyping, I'm a huge fan of asset stuff. Like I just, I just need it to be there and anything that I can do to cut a corner while putting together a prototype or demo piece to find out whether it's fun, any corner I can cut there is saved time. Okay. So if it allows me to prototype faster, awesome. For releasing it. The trick is that it has to not look like any of the screenshots of from the asset store. Yeah. Whether you're taking the same thing but whipping up some new textures or changing out the shader or um, using a post-processing volume on the whole scene or something. It's just something, you know, like, oh, these are really cool assets and now I convert it entirely to cell shaded. And that's a completely different thing. And now it looks and feels different. You know, those are kind of closer to checkbox style changes. But there's a lot of things that you could do to make that look and feel different. Like, oh, these are crazy assets, but I changed the lighting for the entire thing. So you're actually playing the game at night. Mm-hmm. And so it's relatively dark, but like the the flashlight picks things out or something like that. Yeah, that's going to completely change the way people experience those assets. And so if it looks like a screenshot or every single crap popped out game that just like download the asset, add three pieces of of, uh, AI and business logic, give you a gun and go. Yeah, that's that's going to get a bad review. Yeah. Um. But in the end, if you're going to use those assets, you probably need to put in the effort to make sure that they are perfect for what your game is trying to do. And unfortunately, if the asset as it comes from the store is perfect for what your game wants to do, I'm not quite sure you've thought hard enough about the game. Yeah. Or at least in making it visually distinctive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I bought the, this. The asset that I bought, I bought for the animations. Right. The the look is is pretty good, but I could re, I could see myself having the artist redo the textures and do a completely different type of look. Yeah. Um, but there's a ton of stuff that you could do to make that look or feel different. I've got a couple of ideas that I'll chat with you about when we get offline. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, like, as an example, you're you're making a scene. So say like there's that uh that work simulator game on Steam. I forget what it's called. But basically you're in a cubicle and you've mm-hmm. got a bunch of junk. Like there's only so many staplers, so many ways to represent a stapler in a low poly environment. Like I would not cry myself to sleep over buying a stapler in the asset store. Mm-hmm. Um each one of those components, sure, you could draw the you know the desk and the chair and the copy machine and the computer and the phone, all that stuff. 
yourself, or you could just buy all of those and customize them, or just buy them from different asset packs and mix them up together, or mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of ways to go with that. I don't think I'm wondering how much of this is just kind of like a, I'm wondering how much of this is a something we hear about very loudly, and if it's that big of a deal. Um, it just seems like the people who even know that the Unity Asset Store exists are not my target customer in most cases. Uh, yeah, but somebody who plays a lot of games is going to be far more likely to see your game. Um, ignoring those people isn't necessarily helpful either. No. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I find most concerning is actually the false positive. Yeah. The false positive suggests to me that A, to a certain degree, it's a non-issue, but B, it also means that you really can't avoid it. Yeah. Yeah, especially as long as I'm doing any kind of anything that's in a stylized look, I'm going to get accused of it no matter what, even if I drew everything myself mm-hmm. and Maya. Anything that doesn't look absolutely perfectly unique that nobody has ever seen this on right. a computer before is going to get that, it seems like. Yeah. Um, I think in general, for a game, it is far more important that it be fun. Yeah. We've seen it a lot with the resurgence of 8-bit games and things like that. If it is fun to play, you can get away with a lot more on the graphical side. Um, so yeah, if you can if you can evoke the appropriate feeling while you're playing the game... I think you'll be okay. If the game isn't very good and your art is derivative, yes, Joe, people are going to comment. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, more to think about. For now, I'm going to charge blindly ahead with the prototyping idea, including Mm -hmm. thinking of the assets as part of the prototype and see how far I get. So if I have to spend a hundred bucks on prototype assets and then reskin them or make my own versions of them. It's not that I, I'm just in a weird place. Like I would love to be able to write, to draw all of my own assets myself, mm-hmm. but I really am working up against the clock. Oh yeah. And like, I have less than seven weeks left until I have to go find other work. Yeah. So I have less than seven weeks to work on this project. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'll suggest is likely to be problematic is missing, mixing and matching assets from different collections. Yeah. Getting them to look visually similar is going to be tough. Like even just from poly counts, like I've got the entire office set up and it's all relatively low poly stuff. And so nothing has over, you know, 150 polygons. And then I found the perfect stapler, and it's 300 polygons. Unless you're really, really careful with textures, it's almost going to be obvious that that Mm -hmm. stapler does not belong in the same universe with everything else in that office space. Yeah. Um, I bumped into the same problem with uh, my software, FM Perception, in that some users really have an issue with the fact that all of my icons don't look like they were drawn by the same artist. 
Yeah, I can see that. They're they're visually different. Some of them use very thin lines. Some of them use very thick lines. And some people, particularly people with strong design backgrounds, that just drives them batty. I like the fact that they're different because it allows me to visually distinguish between the things. Oh, this is the darker one versus the lighter one. Like that's, they're different. <laughs> different is good. But and we're also talking about a, uh, about a 12 or 13 pixel by 13 pixel image. Yeah. Like not very big, but, um, yeah. Not one of those people that complained about that. I don't recall. Sounds, sounds like something I would be talking about. <laughs> it's not out of character, but... Um, and I think it's a valid complaint. I mean, one of, it's one of those things that if I ever do a substantive visual refresh of the software, one of the things I will probably do is hire somebody to go ahead and make a one complete set of those graphics. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a, a great change. But right now, I'm still adding items to the list... And it's nice to be able to grow, go out and effectively grab a clip art icon, throw it in there and go, nope, this is different. It's, it's visually distinctive and it represents what it's looking for. That is in keeping with the rest of the feel of the app. Yeah. And the second I start making my very own graphics for that is the second that every single modification requires me to go back to the artist. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm in a good spot where in FileMaker I just bought a couple of icon packs that have like we got like three thousand choices. Mm-hmm. And I've got a couple different styles to yeah. choose from, so it's pretty easy to just and, and a lot of those icon packs are gonna cover most of the things you're going to need and they're also going to be relatively consistent in visual appearance. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy, not that you're gonna say like mix and match between icon packs. Because that'll yeah. break your stuff pretty quickly. But um, within an icon pack, yeah. Yeah. So, so one other thing I did this week, as just a footnote to the week, is there was a, a video course called the Unity Certification Course that came with the Unity Pro and Plus trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like twenty hour course, and I started it before the Ray Winderlich book, and then put it aside. And then I had started it again last weekend. It was just doing one chapter a day, and I'm just really bad at doing one of something a day when I can just do all of it all at once. <laughs> so that's what I did. You're as good with moderation as I am. Yeah. That's what I did Thursday. I woke up Thursday morning and said, you know, I can do 12 hours of videos in one day, <laughs> which is what I did. Um, yeah, I mean, it went through all that. It, was, it wasn't a course that you needed to work through the examples as much as the other ones. So it was a lot. It was more suitable for sitting back and watching and taking notes and stopping to look something up or to mull over an idea well particularly since you'd already done the other stuff yeah like if that was your first exposure you probably really should be doing those code examples but there there weren't any code examples oh. to do. it was mostly just here's what we're doing you go figure it out yourself if you want to or you, you know start the next video oh wow okay it wasn't a, a guided course in the same way it was more just covering it, it's a valuable course because it covers all the big pieces of unity in very minute detail interesting um, 
So it's definitely worth doing, but it's not some, it's it's more something you could watch on the TV on the couch than needing to be sitting at your computer using Unity as you go through it. Um, there was one, there was just one big inconsistency. All the chapters were between, say, 20 minutes and an hour long, except for the chapter on particle emitters, which was three hours and 45 minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) It just, yeah, it got really weird. And that's that's the only section I ended up skipping over a lot of content. Like everything else I went through every minute of every video and that one like I saw what we were doing pretty quickly. We we're gonna use all these particle systems to create parent and child particle systems and make these really awesome weapons for the hero to use. I'm like, I don't need to know any of this right now. <laughs> and like just basically I'll come back to this through. later. <laughs> yeah. Like fascinating stuff, but I am not doing that. It has nothing to do with the project I'm working on, so I do not need this knowledge. But it was just like that is way too much detail. Nice. Yeah. But it, but aside from I, that, I, in general, a fan of the coursework? Yeah, it was good. Um it you know it's made by Unity, so pretty high standard of quality there. Um can be a little dry at times, but that's fine. And then each chapter has a little quiz at the end of it, a little self-assessment quiz. And I passed all of those but one with 80 or 100%. And there was one of them that just went and retook the quiz and got the other answer right. So I guess I'm technically ready to take the Unity certification according to this course. Like, well, I don't think so. It would be interesting to take the test and see how well you did. I don't want to do that. In in seven weeks, it would. Well, I mean, anybody else who is Unity certified is going to know how complicated the test is. Yeah, which means that it might help you if you're looking for a Unity gig in a couple of months. Yeah, to yeah, have that, take it but it will help you exactly as much as the certification is worth. Yeah, the FileMaker. If it's anything like the FileMaker certification. The the FileMaker ones always bug me because it's not how much can you do with this software. It's what do you know about our product? Mm-hmm. What of what? Which of our marketing lines do you know how to tell other people? That's really what they're testing you. Yeah. I I just I don't have any information on what the Unity test is like. Mm, me neither. So so one last quick topic. Um, in my Twitter feed today, I came across a link to a GitHub repo called Awesome Falsehood <laughs> and lost about two hours of my time mm-hmm. at that point, just clicking through stuff and reading and kind of sighing and feeling good and feeling bad. Just a lot of good stuff. Um, so this is just a huge link page of different falsehoods that developers can fall into or or tend to believe, especially new developers. And it's all categorized about stuff that revolves around programming, about businesses, dates and times is a really fun one, Mm -hmm. validating email addresses. Um, They even get into gender and names and personal names around the world and things like that. 
It's a pretty, you know, a, lot, a ton of different topics. I didn't read all of this. I probably only read five or ten percent of it. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those things I immediately sent to you. I was like, hey, we should talk about this because this was kind of interesting. So you said that you have a few of those yourself. Yeah, I I don't know if these are covered on their list. That they may well be. Um, and not all of these are from my personal experience, but they're ones that I've heard about that when I heard about them, I went, Oh wait, that's really weird. Um, so in general, I would describe these mostly as things that will very often feel true right up until the point that you bump into one of the edge cases that tells you that you can never, ever assume that this is true. Mm -hmm. For example, a social security number is unique to a person nope. that that is not certified to be true. Um, you could say, no, well, if there's a duplicate social security number, that must mean fraud. That is also false. <laughs> um, as one of the demos for FileMaker seven, they massively increased the number of records that you could squeeze into a single file. And somebody was talking about basically doing something with, I think it was the Social Security Administration of California. And so they had in a table every single Social Security number for every single person in the state of California. And as database designers, they said, well, we need a unique key and Social Security numbers are unique. Oh, no. And so they used that as the primary key for their system. Oh, no. Now, they certified uniqueness, so they weren't getting duplicate keys, but they had people trying to enter a duplicate key, and the system would reject it and say, I'm sorry, that person already exists. Um, you can validly have the same social security number as somebody else in the country. It's not common, but with this many people, uncommon is still enough to break your system. Mm -hmm. Um. Another one was the, I think it was the one millionth downloaded app was called Bump. And it was an app that allowed you to exchange contact information with people at a convention or at a conference. And so if two people were holding their iPhones in their hand, in their fists, you could do a fist bump and the app would notice that these two iPhones had impacted at the same time, at the same basic location and just exchange information. And it was a neat little tech demo. I mean, they got a, a billion downloads not a billion. They got a lot of downloads for being the millionth downloaded app. Cause they got a lot of press for that. Every single story about Apple's millionth app included a reference to the app bump. Yeah. So lots of free marketing. But I was reading a postmortem that those guys had put together, and they said that, that one of the major problems that they ran into was, like, at this point, all iPhones are on AT&T. And all iPhones are set up, at least by default, to get the current phone number from the cell tower. Or, I'm sorry, not the phone number, the current time, the time of day. Mm -hmm. And so this is how when you fly across the country, you turn your phone back on and it gets the new local time because that's coming from a central service. This is a central service based off of effectively constant connect. 
all of the phones should be showing basically the same time if you're in a particular area. So if everybody's in San Francisco for Macworld, all of those people with iPhones should be seeing basically the same time on their phones. Unless they've overridden the time. The answer is, this is not necessarily true. They had phones that were multiple minutes different. And the problem was that the way Bump works is it's using its internet connection to say, okay, my phone just collided with a fist. Let me get the current GPS coordinates and the current timestamp and basically use that as a key and a little bit of fuzzy stuff so that the other person that I'm bumping with can be a little bit further apart from me. You know, it can be showing them as being a couple feet away. And then they'll be within like a second or two of each other. And that'll be enough to be able to uniquely identify the other phone that just bumped me. And that doesn't always work. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it's mind blowing to me that those don't match, but you can't assume that these are just, these are just bad assumptions and they're not obviously bad assumptions. It sounds like the kind of, like all of these are, are, are centrally controlled. They should totally have the same time. Don't bet on it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess my, my stance on this entire topic is i'm i've read enough philosophy to just assume that everything is fake (laughs) nothing matters so i'm not necessarily surprised by any of this but it's it's an amusing list to go through like oh i never thought that i had never considered that this is also crap right and that'll fall apart on you if you were asked to make a system that had to do something with that yeah um, yeah, I ran into many of these that's around like the dates and time stuff and validating data. Mm-hmm. I've run into all of these myself at various points and I've just done so many data mining projects and built so many databases. It's just, yeah, I have seen systems where people have used email addresses as a primary key, mm-hmm. which is ugh, just that. Apparently, this person had never met married couples Mm -hmm. before because a lot of them tend to use the same email, which bugs me in and of itself. (laughs) My parents do that. It's unforgivable. (laughs) Um, Yeah, or or like uh, you can assume that someone's name doesn't change. And one of the things that I think is interesting about that one is if you think about it for even a couple of minutes it should occur to you that this is not the case, (laughs) but it's been missed by a lot of people. But then these also have like second order impacts. Okay. Someone's name has changed. So you change it in the, in the system. Are they still findable under the old name? Are you going to store that old information? Like this is not just make it so somebody can change their name. Okay. Yeah. But did you really did you really think about the repercussions of the fact that this is not consistent? You know, as soon as somebody gets their name changed, well, you can't find them under the old name. They're, they that person just doesn't exist anymore. They're a whole new person. Mm-hmm. Or it's you've got the old history, but it's tied to the new name, and you can't locate the old reference. Or are you going to build the stuff that has to log that change and use that in search criteria and things like that? And so these are the things that 
make my brain hurt and make me really not want to write these kinds of systems. Yeah. Um, this is why I'm working on a game in Unity and not doing more <laughs> database work. Yeah. Um, there's also a whole big section on validating addresses and what make what constitutes a complete address. Like, did they fill out all the necessary fields? Oh, you're missing a field. You must fill out this field before you can request that we ship your thing. Yeah. This became such a common problem where I used to work a couple of jobs ago. We did so much data mining for political campaigns and institutions that address verification and change of address stuff was so common that I just started outsourcing it to a data company Mm -hmm. called, I think, uh, Melissa Data. And I would just send them a list and they would send me a bill and send me (laughs) the list back. And it was just way easier to just say... You deal with the responsibility, and they never had perfection, but they would send you a list back saying these thousand records we couldn't validate. Mm-hmm. We're not saying these aren't true. Yeah. We're not saying they're good or bad. We we couldn't validate them. I had a big system where I was trying to condense. Basically, every time they went to a show or something like that, they had little information cards that you could fill out or add your name to their mailing list. And the problem was that a lot of people had put their name on the mailing list a dozen times. Because every time they went to a show, that was the entry card for the giveaway. <laughs> well, all of those ended up in the database. And now we've got, you know, 150,000 pieces of contact information. And 40% of those are just copies. In some case, multiple copies, but not yeah. always exact duplicates. So hunting those down was kind of fun. Um, but one of the things that will happen is, you know, the um, uh, an address, a complete mailing address will contain a, a uh, building number and street name. Right? Like you got to know where you're sending it. it it's got to have that or like a P.O. box. Like it's got to be there, right? And it's no. <laughs> Particularly when you go international. But... I've even seen if you've uh, mailed stuff to the IRS, in a lot of cases, it's just internal revenue service in a city. That's it. Yeah. IRS, Fresno, California, zip code. Done. They've even gotten rid of those mailboxes. When I had to set up an S-Corp, I had to print the form out online, fill it out, scan it, and fax it to this one number that only worked during certain hours. A periodic fax machine? I don't know that I've ever even heard of one of those. Yeah, and the forum, like, they were covering their bases so much that the forum, usually IRS forms have very detailed instructions on how to fill the form out. This part of of the forum just said, check this URL to see what the current instructions are for submitting this, because it changes so often. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um. I have a tendency to tell the story about my first trip to Ireland. And have you ever heard the U2 song where the streets have no name? Yeah, I think so. I, I always thought that Bono was talking about some metaphorical place of the mind. (laughs) No, he's talking about Ireland. (laughs) Yeah. He's just talking about Ireland. (laughs) Like the address for the hotel that I was staying at was the Knockranny hotel in the town of Knockranny. County Mayo, Ireland. 
That's yeah. like, oh no, it's the Westin in Columbus, Ohio, U.S. Done. That's the whole address. Somewhere <laughs> around here, I've got a box of bookmarks and letters and pieces of paper that I have found in books that I have bought over the years. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple letters from around a century ago from people that lived in this area in Ohio. Um, there was one letter that was sent to somebody that lives in downtown Columbus or lived in downtown Columbus, and it was addressed to their name. And then I think it was just first name, last name, the street, and then city. And they just knew city meant Columbus. <laughs> oh, it, it had the word city. Yeah. City oh, my God. the destination. So <laughs> out on the farm somewhere, take this to the city. Um. Yeah. And so to bring this back around more to specifically game development, there's sections in, in this list about like networking. Mm-hmm. And so one of the networking assumptions is that the you send packets from point A to point B. Like I'm moving my guy and I'm logging where his direction changes happen. And one of the bad assumptions is if I send packets A, B and packets one, two and three. When they get to point B, they'll be in the same order. I will get one, two, and three. Well, that's a bad assumption. But what does that really mean? I can't send the commands from one machine to the other and say, okay, move two steps forward. Now turn to the right. Now move three steps forward. Because you might get, if you send those as those commands, you might manifested at the other end as move two steps forward, then move three steps forward. Now turn to the right and you might get turn to the right. Now move five steps forward. But, now you're, you're making up an interesting game idea, but <laughs> and I actually have a board game version of that. Um, we need like, like a broken version of chess multiplayer uh-huh. online chess, but we're playing by different rules lately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's, have you seen Broken Chess? Yeah. Or Really Broken Chess, I think was the name of the game. Yeah. There's a lot of fun things you can do there. But I've got basically programming games that are about what happens when you were programming very quickly and put the commands in in the wrong order. And you just get to watch your robot go sliding into lasers and falling into a pit in the floor. Like get it all planned out. But you messed up one little thing, and that robot just follows your exact instructions. Sorry. Um, but so you can say, okay, no, 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 I'm going to fix this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the location of the robot each time. So, okay, I, but now they happen in, in bad order. So I moved two steps forward. And then I moved three steps forward effectively and ended up in this other spot. But the last packet has the original starting location. And so that's where I end up when I'm all over. And so now your guy isn't, isn't ever ending up at the wrong location along the path, but he's ending up at the wrong position in the path. Mm. Now you can do stuff that says, okay, now I need to like, serialize these packets so that if I get a packet that's from earlier, 
I will ignore it. Like I've already followed that instruction because I've got the new location. But then you start getting things like teleporting where like I'm running across a room, but I just exist in these moments scattered Mm -hmm. across. There's a lot of stuff that you can see in old games. Um, Gosh, what was it? It was quake. Might've been earlier with like doom stuff, but I think quake did it where you could, people had buttons on their desks that would cause their internet access to get spotty. (laughs) And that allowed them to teleport across a room. Nice. Because the packets in the middle didn't get sent. So the easiest way to solve this specific falsehood or this specific issue to work around it brings me to the falsehood that stood out to me the most, which was the libraries I use won't have bugs. So yeah. obviously I'm going to use a networking library and let them deal with this. Oh, sure. Yes. Absolutely. So li- the libraries I use, they won't have bugs. Um, well, maybe the libraries I use won't have show-stopping bugs. Or the libraries I use will have their bugs fixed quickly. Uh-huh. Or the libraries I use have bugs that can be fixed. Yeah. Or the libraries that I use won't introduce bugs at a later point. Yeah. Like, if it, like if it works now, it will work again in the future. <laughs> good luck with that um yeah i've read a lot of postmortems with people trying to fix things you know that whole problem becomes even worse when i was reading about um age of empires i think Mm -hmm. and when they were writing that the first version had really bad problems with cheating and there was no way to fix it in game one but when they were writing uh age of empires 2 they said, okay, we're going to work on fixing this cheating problem that allowed somebody to just kind of inject cash into their own town without ever actually gathering the resources. It's like everything has to check with everything else. But then what would happen is one single packet would get dropped somewhere and that would result in nobody else's math matching the math that's on my machine. And so it would falsely accuse me of cheating and kick me out of the game. Nice. And so how do you share all this information between all of these machines, validate all this information, but still allow hidden information on an individual's machine so that, because if, if, if everybody's just sharing one common game state, that means that I can write code that can read that game state and show me a map of where everybody is on the side. (laughs) yeah and getting around that is horrifying so don't want to write that kind of game really don't want to write that kind of game i'm starting very very simple compared to any of these (laughs) but yeah these these kinds of assumptions are very easy to make but even if you spot the assumption you may not spot all of the repercussions of not making that assumption you can still end up making choices based upon the assumption you didn't make. <laughs> yeah. And this is when fun. my brain starts to hurt. So that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm at VRHermit underscore Joe. Uh, we also have a website, VRHermits.com. 
If you could, like us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or your podcast player of choice. 